church, and I'm talking with the husband of this couple, and he, he says to me, I, you know, I, this is like the first week they've been here, okay? He says, God, 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 God told me that, that this is Reno bad, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I'm supposed to be. They were gone four weeks later. So, um, so what happened there? I mean, this is a good guy. I mean, this wasn't like some bad guy. I mean, he was not some wacko or something. I mean, just a good guy. Boy, was sweet as can be. So we're running over sometimes and we talk and I, you know, it's no hard feelings or anything. It just, guy point blank comes up to me after the first Sunday he's here, tells me this is where God told him he's supposed to be and four weeks later he's gone. Do you miss God's will? Maybe he's still outside of God's will, right? God will forever hold him accountable. Did God's will change? It was really only those four weeks that mattered. I would argue it's just more, more likely he just really didn't understand what it means to be guided by God in the first place. I remember we kind of got into this discussion of God's will back in Acts chapter 16 where it talks about the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, and Paul and Silas and Timothy, they uh, they try to go all these various ways, right, until they finally hit Troas. And then when they're there in Troas, which is where you would go if you're going to Macedonia anyway, Paul has a vision confirming that they are on target to go to Macedonia to preach the gospel. And I think what kind of got us into this discussion is just noting how, considering Paul is an apostle, Yet he does not seem to have a real good grasp on what God wants him to do. You'd think he would have had an easier time figuring out what God wanted him to do. So we got talking about God's will. And we noted uh, that while God's will, from God's perspective, is, is unified, I mean, God just has one will. It's not like he's up, you know, in, in heaven with multiple wills and trying to keep track of them in a fancy spreadsheet or something. That we experience God's will, and I think I wish I would have chosen that word earlier in this little mini-series, experience God's will, in three ways. We experience the sovereign will, which are those things he has decreed and allowed, things that are going to come to pass. Can't change it. It's his plan, his big plan for history, right? His plan for redemption, right? You got creation and fall, and redemption, and someday recreation, renewal. Sometimes you can't even see how it's working out until after it's passed, right? Some of it's declared in Scripture to us. That's why we have prophecy. That's why the Scripture can say, you know, there's the verse about how Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Well, he's got a plan that he knew what the plan was. He made sure it happened. It's a sovereign will. You don't spend too much time thinking about that because there's nothing you can do about it anyway. And we talked about his moral will, right? Those are all the commands and the principles he's given us to live by. All the things he wants us to do or not do. The principles that we should live by if we want to have a God-honoring and, and, a, and a, a good life. A whole bunch of those. They're found in the scriptures, right? He's objectively revealed those to us. You don't have to, I mean, you know, there's no magic formula to discovering them. They're spelled out. 
You just got to study and learn. Put them into action. And then what we talked quite a bit last week about this idea of his individual will. Does he have a will regarding specific individual decisions you might need to make or not make? Right? And does he have, you know, should I buy this car? Or does he care? Does he have a specific will about me going to college? Or does he have a specific will about, you know, last week I talked about whether I should go to Peppers or Carlos Kelly's after church for lunch. I'll talk about more of that in a minute. I mean, that's clearly the most important thing in the last Sunday's sermon. <laughs> so from last week, there's three main points I want you to remember from last week. First, about God's sovereign will is that it strengthens our faith and lets us live with hope. Since we know he's ultimately in control and he has a plan which includes even those things that are evil, even though he's not their primary cause, his plan includes those things and accounts for them, we can trust him that he's working out things for our ultimate good. Since he's moving history towards its ultimate end of redemption, we can have hope that all wrongs will be righted, all injustices will be done away with, and we can look confidently toward eternity. It's going to happen. When he promises that he's going to wipe away every tear and that sort of thing, it's going to happen. That day is coming. Jesus will return. The wrongs will be made right. Justice will be done. Secondly, we talked about God's moral will and how it forms a fence within which we can live our lives with a lot of freedom about the decisions we make. Our first and foremost duty is to honor our Lord Jesus by living out the things he's called us to. Now within that, there's a lot of latitude to how we live. A lot of freedom. As long as we're striving to live within the fence of his moral will. There's, there's, there's a big area in there. And you can know whether you're in or out because you can, you can, you can find his moral will. So you can figure out where the boundaries of the fence are. You can live within those things, and, and there's a lot of freedom within that. The third point that I want to make last week is that there is no dot. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the dot is how Gary Friesen, who wrote a book about this, describes the idea of the, the center of God's will or the perfect will of God. And I agree with Dr. Friesen and a whole host of other commentators there is no dot. It doesn't exist. If it did, then that means literally every decision would require input from God for us to always hit the bullseye. We went to Carlos O'Kelly's. And the reason we went to Carlos O'Kelly's is not because God really cared where we went or not, I don't think. But Taylor has a will. And the will of Taylor was that we went to Carlos O'Kelly's. Okay, so it was. I don't remember that question. It's all right. The stuff they can do with a convection oven is absolutely <laughs> 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 But most importantly about the dot that doesn't exist is it's not born out in Scripture. Nobody lives like that in Scripture. There's no instruction to live like that. If we're supposed to live like that, where every decision God needs input on because there's this center of his will, and you have to hit this center to be perfectly in his will, then the burden would be on God to reveal his will for every decision. 
It's already revealed his moral will and given me the space within to make decisions. But having said all that, so that kind of brings you up to date to what we've studied so far. Having said all of that, we do realize that Scripture bears out that sometimes God seems to have some specific thing he wants his follower to do. How do we determine or receive that guidance? Or how do we find guidance when there's no specific command or principle I can directly easily apply? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And before I go there, I have a couple of warnings. Because if we're going to talk about guidance from above, there's a couple things we need to keep in mind. So I have some warnings. Whatever sort of guidance God might give in some specific situation, two things you want to keep in mind. There may be others, but there's for sure these two. The first one is, it's not the norm. In scripture, divine guidance related to specific decisions is not the normal pattern by which God works. Now, I could do a whole series on the subject of providence, okay, how God providentially works. That's not a word we use much anymore unless we're referring to Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. but, but probably one of the more important concepts in scripture is the idea of God's providence. That he's, he's in control, kind of behind the scenes doing his thing, and, you know, he doesn't have to miraculously intervene constantly. So his, this idea of him giving specific guidance for specific decisions is not the normal pattern by which he works any more than miracles are the normal way that he accomplishes things. Miracles are miracles precisely because they are exceptions to the normal way God does stuff. It is where God goes outside the way he has providentially created the universe and acts contrary to the normal laws and governance of the universe, right? Okay? They're exceptions. They're not the rule. I mean, I love my charismatic brothers and sisters, but the miraculous workings of the Spirit in that way are not meant to be everyday occurrences. It wouldn't be very miraculous then. Some forms of divine guidance are similar. It's not the normal way God leads us to doing His will. His will are revealed in the Scriptures through various commands and principles, is his normal way of helping us understand his will. Let me give, give you an example of this from the scriptures. We have all the important highlights that God wants us to have of Abraham's life over the course of a hundred years. Have you ever thought about that? You get a hundred years about him because he's 75 in Genesis chapter 12 when God comes to him and says, pack your tents, Abe, we're taking a hike. 75. At the end of his story, in Genesis 26, I think it is, yeah, I think it's 26, he's 175 when he dies. So you've got 100 years of Abraham's life, okay? In 100 years, God visits many times. This is Abraham, right? That's less than once a decade he actually hears from God. Think about that. This guy is arguably one of the three most important people in the Old Testament, one of the five most important probably in the whole Bible. hundred years of his life were told about eight times God visited him. And he gets more than most. And really the only other guy that gets more than Abraham is Moses. But Moses has a very, Moses, we could have a whole series on Moses sometime about how he's prophet, priest, and king, and prefigures Christ, and how he's an incredibly unique figure in the 
Old Testament, above all other figures, even above David. It'd be a good series. because you think you're some special little snowflake. You're not. Okay? So if somebody insults you at a party, okay, you don't need to ask if it's God's will if you smack them upside the head or not. God's already spoken on this. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? If you don't know what to do, go read about it. He'll give you the answer there. You don't need to ask God, God, do I need to punch this person? If you see, if you're sitting in the restaurant, hey, Carlos O'Kelly's, that's where I had lunch last Sunday. They should pay me for promoting that. <laughs> and as you are sitting there waiting for your table in the lobby, somebody's walking out the door and their wallet slips out of their pocket on the floor, okay? You do not have to ask God if you've suddenly been blessed with a cash windfall because you saw a guy in Carlos wallet and you just pick it up and help yourself. Okay? God's already spoken on this. Thou shalt not steal. Okay? You don't, you don't need... He's not going to give an exception. Yes, yes, I know your bills are due and you're, you're $150 short for the month and this guy happens to have $150 cash in his wallet. I don't care. God's already spoken on this. You're not a special snowflake. You don't get to take money. Okay. So this is why this... this God's not going to make an exception for you. This is why, here I go again, sounding like a broken record, knowing what God has already said in his written word is the absolutely number one thing you can do to know God's will. Let me say it again for the people in the back, or the front, or the middle, or the people on the internet. <clears throat> you might watch this later. The number one thing you can do, if you want to know God's will, is you need to know his word first. Okay? 
Start there. Now, that's not going to cover you in every last possible situation, but everything starts there. Look at what Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which we, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So Peter says that all the things you need for life and godliness, okay, in other words, to follow God in our daily lives, are given to us where? Well, in knowing Jesus and his promises to us. Where do I go to find out about Jesus and his promises? And everything else I need for godliness. Well, the only place I know of to go find out about that is right there. It's in there. Okay? Think about the huge advantage we have over our early church ancestors. They needed more direct guidance at times because the New Testament was in process. This is why, you know, remember when we started the book of Acts and I reminded us when we came back to the book of Acts? We don't, we don't look at the early church in the book of Acts and look at things the way they did things and think of that as, well, this is the pattern for us. Because they did this in Acts, we should do this today. No, they were just starting to figure things out. Otherwise, you know, we'd be casting dice or something to choose our next elders. Oh. Strong straws. So if you get to be an elder, it should mean you got the short straw or the long straw. <laughs> we should also expect that we should not need as much direct guidance because we have a complete Bible that they did not have in the first century. I mean, you roll around in 90 AD and John's still writing. You don't even have that yet. Right? It took a while for things to circulate and get collected and copied and all that kind of stuff. So with those warnings, that divine guidance is not the norm and that it never contradicts the already revealed parts of God's will. Well, let's think of a couple ways we can get help from God's word when it's not explicit. And the first of those is wisdom. Wisdom is putting to know or putting to work what we know from God's word, from Jesus, in, into action in ways that it maybe isn't directly tells us. It's the applying of God's word through prayer a lot of times all the various situations and questions and struggles of life. This, I think, is the norm for decisions that are not directly covered by a command or a principle from God's word. If it's not explicitly spelled out, you've got to apply some wisdom. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect or mature, which is what that word is, and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So James tells us here, you know, trials are actually good for us, because they're going to help us grow in faith and perseverance. And that will lead us to maturity and spiritual completeness. So it's okay. Trials, they're not fun. He never says they're fun. He says they can have a good result. Then he adds that in our process of becoming mature and spiritually complete, if we need wisdom on how to face a struggle or a trial, we should ask God. We should ask without doubting whether or not God is going to grant what we need. Now, I think this is a pretty important passage if you're going to live as a follower of Jesus. Because there's going to be trials, and there's going to be questions, and there's going to be struggles, 
And when people are struggling, they often ask things like, why? Or they wonder how they're going to get through it. Or what does God expect from them? That sort of thing. And so James tells us we can ask for wisdom. I like to think of this as asking God, what principles, what things from your word, what things that I know about God should I be living according to in my trial or struggle, or in the midst of my need? I have a neighbor who hates me. I know, you're shocked. Because I'm probably the nicest guy around. Okay, maybe not. But yeah, there's one. Her husband likes me. She just doesn't. You know, I just treat her with the same kindness that I do all of my other neighbors. Right? That's just wisdom in action. Okay? One day long ago, she was berating me. Much to the embarrassment of her husband. I just... Remember the Proverbs that talk about not answering someone according to their anger, not paying back evil for evil. It seemed like it applied in that situation. Could I, could I have like, verbally defended myself? I think so. I'm pretty, pretty good at that. I can have a pretty sharp tongue when I need to have one. But you know, just walk away. Remember years ago, those WWJD bracelets were in vogue, right? <laughs> Right, remember that, right? I remember you guys were little. Okay. What would Jesus do? And I mean, they've become very cliche, obviously. Uh, but the question um, of wisdom very much asks that question. Is it biblical to ask God what I should do? What wisdom? Or it is, it's biblical. I mean, yeah. Ask God what you should do. What, what wisdom applies? Maybe I don't have direct command. But I can look to the principles of God's word. I can ask him to give me wisdom. I can ask him to, to help me. I call this your WQ. You know, if IQ is intelligence quotient, then WQ is your wisdom quotient. You want to work on your wisdom quotient. Psalm 119, verses 97 through 100. <clears throat> okay, you got to love books of the Bible that have over 100 verses in them. Right? When you get to that one on the reading plan, you're hoping that's the only thing that day. <clears throat> oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. Psalmist's point here is that lots of input from God's word will make us wise. It will give us the way of wisdom. And wisdom is a primary component of making godly decisions. I can get it from the Bible. I can get it by asking God. Especially when I can't apply a specific chapter and verse. I can apply the principles, though, and ask them to help me. So go to wisdom. If you're wondering what to do, wisdom is a good thing. All of us need to increase our WQ. There's other means of guidance, too. Prayer. Hopefully, one of the more obvious sources of decision-making assistance is prayer. And by prayer, in this case, I mean listening prayer, not talking prayer. See, part of the problem with our prayer life sometimes is we do all the talking. For some of you, that's the problem in your marriage, too. You talk too much and don't listen enough. Just say it. My wife's going, yeah, that's exactly your problem. <laughs> what happens when you marry a preacher? She's be wrong. No, no, she's, she's always right. Um, she thought she was wrong once, but she was mistaken. Um, Silence to listen to this little small voice.
times receive what I call an audible from God, like out loud. Thou shalt. Okay. Haven't heard Morgan Freeman's voice, you know, <laughs> telling me to do something. I mean, I mean, I know people who have. Has happened to me. But I will tell you that in prayer, I received a lot of impressions and images and urgings. But only when I'm being silent and opening myself to those impressions and urgings and images. Numerous times when I've been praying, for example, I've had someone's name or face pop into my head completely at random, right? With an urge to pray for them or to contact them or something. And in every case, it's been a worthwhile thing to do. Okay? I mean, if I haven't seen you for a week and I'm praying and suddenly your name pops into my head, I'm going to assume that that's God telling me that I need to pray for you or call you or maybe both. Good to follow up on those things. Got to pay attention. Got to listen. In Acts 13, <coughs> it's during the time of worship and prayer and fasting that they received the word from the Holy Spirit to set aside Barnabas and Paul for the first missionary journey when they're together and praying. Now, how does that answer come? Like, like I, again, I, I think it comes impressions, images a lot. Might come, you've been praying about something, and some passage of scripture comes to mind that you, you have not thought about for a year. That happens to me all the time. Or maybe I'm praying, and I'm re praying through the scriptures, and that's a very good thing to do, to take a scripture and start praying it. Okay? And I might find the answer I'm looking for all of a sudden, because Somehow, in his providential working, God has led me to some passage of Scripture. Now, of course, that means you have to be prayerfully meditating on God's Word. It also means you'd be listening. But prayer is an avenue. And people. One of the most useful means of providential guidance is people. Right? So some months ago, I was trying to decide what to preach on. This is a perennial problem for preachers. You know, I try to find out six months, eight months in advance. Getting to the end of the summer, I wasn't sure what I should preach on. And I have taken through in the last year or so, when we're in our elders' meetings, we talk about what the sermons are going to be, what we're going to do, what, what I should preach. And one, one of the, I, I might have been Brandon actually, mentioned, oh, we could go back to the book of Acts. She didn't finish that yet. Um, and then the very next day, next day, I'm talking to Clark. I said, oh, I'm just kind of figuring out what I'm going to preach on. And Clark says, unprompted, we can always go back to the book of Acts. <laughs> At that point, I said, well, that's enough. <laughs> Acts it is until we get at it. <laughs> because in my mind, when it's suggested in the elders meeting and someone I deeply respect the next day says the same thing to me, I mean, could it be coincidence? Of course it could be, if I believe in such things. More likely I'm just going to go with providentially working with God or whatever. This is what I'm supposed to do. So here we are. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Walk with wise people. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many ad advisors, they succeed. There you go. Why it's wise to get advice from other people who love the Lord. God may providentially communicate something to us through them when we need to make a decision. It could be something as simple as they're aware of something in the Bible that might apply to our situation. I mean, I'd like to say that I know every principle and command of the Bible, blackboard, forward, blah, 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 but I know I don't. 
be talking to Delvin about something, they'll go, well, the Bible says, we're going, oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that verse. That's a good point. Could be just that they give us wise counsel. If you read through the New Testament, you will on occasion see something like, it seemed best to us. Or, we thought it wise. Stuff like that. Where, where people together, they're thinking and praying through something or whatever, and then they think, well, we, we thought it was best to do this. It doesn't say that God guided them to do that in some specific, miraculous way. It just says, we thought it was best to do this. According to God's wisdom inside the fence of his moral will, we thought this was a good idea, so we went there. And hey, it turned out to be a great idea. Now, an important thing here, I think, is that if we ask for counsel, only ask for counsel if you are willing to actually take that counsel into consideration and not just do what you want anyway. See, sometimes people ask for counsel, but they've already really decided what they want to do, and they're hoping you're going to confirm it. But then when you tell them something different, they go, oh, well, that will go. And they move on and do what they want anyway. Give you an example. Three times in my life. Three times. Three times. A friend has asked me for counsel about a specific church or ministry that they were considering. All three times I gave them counsel and they ignored it. In all three cases, it turned into a disaster in less than a year and they were out of a job. cases, they came to me afterwards and said, I should have listened to you. And fortunately, I'm the kind of guy who doesn't run away. As you know, when your friend's already down, it doesn't help to care. Now, I'm not a prophet. I just like to make one. I'm not a genius. But unfortunately, it seems I'm right about some of those things pretty often. Because sometimes somebody outside the situation can look at it and go, man, it's going to go bad. It's not going to go well for you. So if you want counsel, take it. But, but be, be ready that it might not say what you want it to say. Last one, circumstances, or what we call open and closed doors. Now, that probably seems kind of obvious, maybe, but I think we don't give God enough credit for his providence in opening and closing doors for us in the midst of all the things we might face or pray, are praying about. But if you're praying about a decision and you've lined up all the scripture that can apply and you've done all the wisdom stuff and you're still not what to, to, sure what to do, watch for what happens. Maybe a door is going to open or close and then you'll, then you'll know God's will, right? If the opportunity ends, guess what? You know what God wants. That's an area I think we need to remember that we have a lot of freedom inside that moral will of God. If there's no scriptural prohibition and there's a specific opportunity and it seems to be wise, right, then you know what? It's okay to step through that door. It's okay. You know, you can want a Chevy or a Honda. There's nothing in scripture that tells me whether I should buy a Chevy or a Honda. And if all other things are equal, you can buy which one you want. But you know, if you're trying to decide then you go back to the dealership and the Chevy's gone, then you pretty much got your answer. Okay? Now, that might just be normal circumstances. Somebody showed up before you and bought the car. It might be a God's will thing. Okay? Don't know. 
don't get locked into, you know, worrying about God's will. And then something happens and the door closes and then you wonder if you missed God's will or didn't mean no. A lot of freedom in there. The door closes, might be God, might be nothing but no, more than normal life, and that's okay. Either way, you know that you can't go that way. And that's all right. You got your answer. Okay, so those are, those are all fairly normal common things. We're going to finish by talking about what I call the extraordinary means of guidance. These are the ones you really got to watch out for. Because they're basically miraculous in nature. Among these would be dreams, visions, and angels. All of these are testified in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. All of them are also exceedingly rare. These are the ones we really need to heed the warnings. For example, Paul receives a vision from the Lord when his life is threatened in Corinth, Acts 18. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. His life was being threatened. He was thinking, man, I think maybe it's time to leave Corinth. For I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed here in six months, teaching the word of God among them. Pretty cool. That's definitely never happened to me. Now, we know Mary and Zechariah, right? The story of Jesus' birth. They both get angelic visitations. Daniel, angels, sweet. In both the Old Testament Joseph and the New Testament Joseph get dreams. Right? Joseph has his dream about his brothers and his mom and dad bowing down to him. Yeah, that goes real well for him when he goes bragging about that. Yeah. Not so good, dude. Right? Joseph, New Testament Joseph, dreams about what he needed to do to protect baby Jesus. And we know from numerous testimonies even today, in certain parts of the world, God is calling people to himself. Jesus is calling people to dreams and visions, bringing them to himself in places where the Bible is not freely distributed, primarily Muslim places. But there's a couple things we need to think about with these extraordinary means of guidance. Not saying, I'm not saying they can't happen. Because there's, there's no specific passage in the scriptures that say these things have been completely done away with. But we need to remember, they are rare and extraordinary. If anybody comes to me, if you come to me claiming that you had a vision, or that God spoke to you in a dream, or that an angel visited you, okay, I'm going to be skeptical. I'm going to want to talk a lot about it and examine it quite a bit, okay, and make sure that your dream or your vision or your supposed angelic visitation from Gabriel was not just a spicy burrito last night. Because you know, sometimes I have some pretty crazy dreams, and sometimes they involve spicy burritos the night before. That stopped me from eating spicy food, but I'm just saying. Secondly, in every case I know of in the Bible, and if you can find one that this isn't true, okay, let me know. But in every case I can think of in the Bible where a vision, dream, or angel comes to a believer, the guidance is clearly understood and known to be from the Lord. It is really clear and obvious to them. Okay? If they're a believer. Okay, when Joseph has a dream about taking baby Jesus and Mother Mary to Egypt, okay, he doesn't wake up the next morning and go, Oh, that falafel 
When Paul has a vision, he doesn't get everybody together to talk about it and say, hey, I wonder what this vision meant. Okay? The only people who get dreams or visions and need an interpretation are the people who get them who don't know the Lord, like Pharaoh, right? Who needs Joseph to come out of prison then interpret his dreams. Or Nebuchadnezzar, right? Who needs Daniel. If a believer gets a vision, dream, or an angelic visitation, they clearly, every time in the Bible, they clearly know what's up. Unbelievers, they have to go looking for, for some help. Okay? And so I say that because I think if you have a dream or a vision or an angelic message, maybe it, you're going to really know it. Unless it's an angelic visitation to test your hospitality. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go read Hebrews 13, verse 2. So is it possible God might speak to us in a dream or vision or send an angel? Yeah, sure. Is it likely? Yeah, I'm going to have to say probably not. It's very extraordinary in the Bible. And so I think it would be for us also. So I think if somebody claims that, we're at least right to be skeptical. Not evil skeptical, like I'm getting. But skeptical, ask some questions. And if you think you've had one, you too should be, you know, just be careful. Ask yourself some questions. Okay. So within God's moral will of the fence, right, there's a lot of freedom for decision making. And there's those times sometimes we're not sure what applies. Or we need to decide, you know, there's other means of guidance that he's given us. And first of all, foremost among them is, is his wisdom. And there's prayer. And there's people. And there's analyzing the circumstances. These are also ways God can help us when we need to make decisions. When we're not exactly sure. And even while exceedingly rare, sometimes God will even use miraculous means to show us his will and expose if he really has to. If he really needs to get on to you. But in almost every case, and you, if you haven't detected this in the last few weeks, then I'll say it once more. The number one thing that you can do, number one, to know God's will is to know his those work. Because that's where we have the objective depository of his commands and his principles and his revelation that he wants us to know for him our lives. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you this morning. I want to thank you for your word because you've given it to us. <clears throat> what Peter says, so that we have what we need for life and godliness. I want to thank you, Jesus who makes it possible for your spirit to teach us from that word, for us to be able to follow you in the first place because of his taking on our sin on our behalf. And so, Father, help us to be great students of your word.